Great. I've got, um, uh, there's quite a few people coming in. So if you see me reaching forward, that's me letting people in. It's, um, um, well, again, thanks to everybody. I'll be referring to some of my notes. I'm going to introduce you to Shefik Bay and I'll get him to sort of give a bit of a background um, to, um, or his background. But the run sheet today is really just an overview of Shefik, um, um, what Shefik's working on now, um, and really to focus, I guess, um, you know, um, framing up that problem space that we're in right now. So this is the, the persona, the customer journey, problem statement, and some research elements that bind, starts to bind that together. Thank you to all the teams that sent through the questions. I've given them across the Sheffield. I'll sort of curate those and I'll work through those once Sheffield's gone through his bit. And then, um, you know, um, we'll summarise with any key takeaways and summaries, but um, without any further ado, we'll try and keep it to that one hour maximum. And um, I'll pass it over to Sheffield for a bit of an overview and um, also what he's working on now, some of the cool stuff that he's working on. Thanks, Adam, and hi, everyone. Nice to, to meet you all virtually. Um, as, a, as a way of introduction, so I currently run a consulting business uh, by the name of Lido Island. And our role is really to assist probably mainly for purpose businesses and startups with both with, I guess, a number of different areas, but really revolving around innovation, strategy and, and execution, essentially. So the work I've been working on sort of most recently has been across a range of sectors, whether that's government, um, different charities and for purpose businesses, social impact businesses and a range of startups. So uh, it's a couple, and I, I guess I can go into a little bit more detail with some of those case studies in terms of the types of work that I'm working on uh, as this sort of unfolds. And I've seen some of your questions as well, and there's some really great and poignant, poignant questions around better understanding the problem space. And hopefully I can give you a few insights and, and tips and tricks to, to maybe use and leverage in the future. Um, also, as a way of background, Adam, uh, I guess, has introduced me to this uh, program because we've done some work together in the past around research. So, uh, I've, my background has been sort of in, in that sort of analytics and research space originally. So, I, in the sort of late 90s and early 2000s, set up a business called Red Sheriff, which was a global audience measurement platform which was essentially the basis of what Google Analytics became um, into, the, into the, the, the later 2000s. And um, sort of after that, I established a user experience consultancy business called the U1 Group, also developed a global, uh, a global platform called Loop11, which was really around providing online, unmoderated user testing uh, and really focused on the North American market. And then since uh, exiting both U1 Group and Loop 11, I've been focusing mainly on consulting. So that's probably a little bit of a background in terms of me. What, what kind of makes me tick and what really interests me is, is very much around innovative uh, and transformative innovation. Um, so how can we sort of improve the human experience? And that is largely why I focused on government for purpose businesses and startups. And certainly what my role is, is to try and help and support great people doing great work. So that's probably a little bit of a nutshell of, of what I've been up to. 
Um, Adam, do you want me to get into some more case studies in terms of some of those recent clients? I think you might be on mute there, Adam. Un yeah, unmute, there you go. Um, <laughs> um, how's that? It, can everyone hear me? Yes. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, so I think what's great, and, and just to sort of give context also for the team, um, what, what Sheffick also has done in this problem space, particularly around focus groups, use interaction, uh, both at that primary level. Um, um, uh, I think we did a lot of work in the, in the uh, with Think Group around 2008-9, where, where we actually had teams of people come in and we, we watched their behaviours online. And so I think Sheffick really within that space is, I guess, where we're fielding a lot of um, you know, uncertainty, students doing it for the first time, unsure about, um, what the next steps are, trepidation, fear of making mistakes, yeah, yeah. Um, all that sort of stuff. So, um, but um, yeah, if you want to share some sort of case studies, particularly in the area, some some things that you've seen, particularly in the problem domain, where teams have worked really well together and what were some of the key things there. And also some examples of where it didn't work so well. So the teams can look at, if they're going down that path, they can see potentially some signs, what we yeah. might never get away from. Yep, sure, definitely. So I guess that the first point is, if we're thinking about transformative innovation or any form of innovation, we're looking to bring about change. So uh, often what happens is, and this is from, from my experience, is that we most often people and organisations try to bring about change thinking they're bringing about a technical change. So, but what actually they're doing is, is transformative innovation really requires adaptive change. And there's a significant difference. I think worth as an entree to just talk a little bit about what, what that is and what the differences are. Uh, if you know a little bit about this space, um, excuse me for covering old territory, but I think it's important for those that don't. So, Again, technical, a technical challenge or a technical change might be something such as developing an app such as Tram Tracker. So what that is, is that I, you know, punters or commuters need to know when the tram is about to arrive. Um, it's a fairly simple problem state. Um, when does the tram arrive at this tram stop? Um, when does the next tram come? And there's a technical solution for that. So it can be solved pretty rapidly and quickly and then executed. So with, with an innovation such as that, it really is, is, it requires a bit of informative learning, but it can actually be solved quite rapidly in a shorter span of time. Um, we'd all love to have great innovations that solve a technical challenge uh, because they're so easy to implement. And Adam, when you said before that it can be a little bit overwhelming, Partly that is that there's very few innovations that we will probably work on that just solve technical challenges. Most of them are really about adaptive challenges and these are tend to be a lot harder to define. Um, the, other, the other area about adaptive challenges is that they really require sort of longer term exploration and outcomes. So what often happens is that you might sort of pull a couple of levers to say, if I do X, I might get Y. You might actually get Y, but you might also get A, B, C, D, E, F, G at the same time, and which you didn't expect in, in the first instance. It also requires a lot of collaboration. So it's not a one person job. And often 
it doesn't suit the type of individual that wants to sort of lock themselves away in a room, come up with an awesome idea and then take it to market. So that's another really important thing. A lot of what I come across both with clients uh, and out in the marketplace as well is that people can be really protective around their IP and say, look, I can't tell anyone about this. I've got to sort of keep it under wraps. Um, but what actually happens is that they, they lock down the ability to go externally and source a whole range of different divergent thoughts and ideas that they can bring into the mix. So there are a couple of things. So I'd like you just to kind of bear in mind the adaptive challenges uh, when we're looking at the problem space, because often we get overwhelmed when we see that we don't have to just solve one problem. We're actually solving a multitude of problems with what we're trying to innovate. Um, so look, in terms of some, some interesting case studies, it might be worth taking you through a couple. So I worked with an, an organisation, a startup by the name of Kookaburra. Um, if you want to check out Kookaburra, they're up and out in the marketplace currently. And they approached me about 12 months ago because they had come up with a concept which was really tapping into a growing market. And that growing market was home-based cooks. So in my demographic, I've got young children, I work full time, I'm a little bit time poor, I struggle to cook every night. Um, I'm not really in a position where I want to do Uber Eats every night of the week. Um, and what, what, what these home-based cooks have sort of sprung out of, the, out of the ground in all sorts of different suburbs is they're servicing that market where maybe it's families who want to have a good wholesome home-baked or home-cooked meal, that's delivered to their door, picked up from a school. And, uh, and essentially Kookaburra was trying to support those home-based cooks who really had very little idea or understanding of accounting, didn't really, don't really know where, what, what their profit margins are on the meals that they're preparing and so on and so forth. So what, what we did with them is ran a, a, a Google Ventures style five-day design sprint where we were able to go through a whole range of, uh, I guess, exercises, which really sort of tapped into the design thinking paradigm of convergent, divergent thinking through to prototyping and testing all over the course of five days. So with that particular product, they launched, went into beta mode, set it up with a couple of cooks, um, was going quite well as they're approaching a funding round. And then, you know, we know what's happened over the last uh, month or two with COVID-19. Um, an enormous, a, 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 a huge opportunity to support these restaurants and delis and other food supply businesses that kind of have to rapidly approach takeaway and move away from in, 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 in on-premise dining. So they're experiencing huge growth, which is beautiful timing. Uh, had, uh, really, it was all, all, it's all kind of luck in that context. But the process in which that they went through evaluating what their target, what the problem space was, who the target audience was, how they could go about actually servicing that need and delivering on it has been a really good success story. So um, that's one you can certainly, can certainly check out. Um, another bit of, bit of work that I've been heavily involved with is with a government agency called Service Victoria. And Service Victoria, their role is almost like the MyGov of 
Victorian government, uh, really focusing on making transacting with government pain-free and, and easier. And if you, I'm sure a number of you have transacted with governments in a whole raft of different ways, whether that's renewing your car registration, maybe getting a fishing license or working with children check or whatever that might be. What Service Victoria are aiming to do is turn the government paradigm on its head and be more customer focused and human centered in the way that it develops its services. So that's been a really interesting one because it's really required a hell of a lot of adaptive change from the government side. And what Service Victoria does is it sits in between the agency. So in the case of say a working with children check, it's Department of Justice um, and, the, and the customer, which is the, the people that are actually looking to get a working with children check. And so an inordinate number of challenges uh, exist in, in that space because Service Victoria kind of has to, to bow to a number of gods. So firstly, customer experience being number one, we have to make the process as pain-free as possible. And part of that was trying to provide digital online uh, uh, digital identity verification. So rather than moving off to an Australia Post outlet to get a, an operator to evaluate that, yes, this is Sheffield Bay and I've seen his identification and yes, um, that that's the right person that, that's due to get the working with children check that that happens online uh, and some of the challenges that we've had uh, with both that and and the solar homes rebate scheme which some of you may have been aware of as well is that there's some technical limitations uh, and not everyone can get through a digital identity verification process so there's been a whole lot of work and, and challenge around understanding the problem space really working with the disparate stakeholders that often work across purposes to try and develop an outcome that is pain-free for customers. So some really, really interesting learnings there. I think if, if I'm to be fair with the government, um, often the government try to approach innovation as a technical challenge or technical change. Um, when in fact, it's, it's nothing to do with that at all. It's about taking a whole range of stakeholders on a journey. So the tech actually doesn't matter. And, and to some degree, I'd say that ideas are cheap. From an innovation standpoint, ideas are cheap. And I, I'm, I myself don't hold my own ideas too close to my chest because I really want to get them out there, get people to talk to me and conduct my own research and actually tear it apart. Remove that affirmation bias that I might have that I've got a winning idea here and just pull it apart. So sometimes that leads you down to a position where you have to exit and pull out of a different idea or concept because you verified that you're not really solving the problem. Or indeed, because it's an adaptive change that you're bringing about that the stakeholders are really, really hard to work with and that you don't think that you can deliver the, the, the outcomes that you'd intended to in the first place. So there, there, are, there are a couple of examples of things that have worked well and, and not so well. And I think the other, the other thing to, to know is that this process never finishes. So we have, the, we have the perspective when we start out on a journey, when we've got a great idea or now the light bulb switches on that we're going to take this to market and we're going to absolutely smash it. But innovation is incremental 
And, and if you look at really successful businesses, where they start out and where they launch versus where they end up you know, one, two, three, four, five, ten, ten years later is in a very, very different position. So we can never really stop evolving and, and looking at continually innovating what we're doing. And so I guess on that note, it's probably worthwhile talking about some of the tools, practices and processes that, that certainly I use and I advocate in this journey. So, and I know that Adam in a previous discussion has mentioned he's sort of walked you through a little bit of the human-centered design, design thinking, service design concepts. And, and there, there's certainly aspects that I look to include in, in each project that I, that I work on. What's really important, I think, at the get-go when we're looking at understanding that we've got a great idea that we're looking to evolve, is that we need to take that balcony view on, on that problem state. So, again, Adam has talked to you probably a little bit before about Clayton Christensen, you know, what is the job to be done? So how do we get ourselves in a position that we can objectively take that balcony view and not just affirm what a great idea we've got because that's that's useless you know we need to really understand well, how would this solve the, the inherent problem that's out in the marketplace and so how do you actually start on that journey and uh, adam was saying that it can be a little bit overwhelming and and i have built numerous platforms and launched and sold businesses and i still find the process overwhelming at times so so you're not alone what, what I fall back to is really those sanity checks, um, sort of opening up to the devil's advocates and, and making sure that I'm conducting research, that I'm going out and exploring the problem space. And often I saw a question that came through in some of the questions that, that uh, Adam had sent through earlier to say, which do we do first? Do we start with qualitative research or quantitative research? And, I guess the first step is to kind of see what existing research is currently presented out there that might reflect the problem that we're dealing with. So do a bit of desk research. But then once we've done that bit of digging, it's really about delving into some qualitative research first. So what I often do is look at engaging uh, mobile ethnography studies. So there's some great online platforms to, to, to recruit audiences and actually execute studies. And, the purpose of those is really to get into the mindset of what your potential customers are doing from a broader perspective. So if it's a case of, um, for example, I talked about the working with children check earlier, what we actually did is followed the end to end customer journey of people that were wanting to get a working with children check. So right from the spark, what was the element that told them, oh, I really do need a working with children check. I better check that out. How did they go through the process of exploring what's involved? How did they end up, um, did they consult friends, families, sporting clubs? Um, what were some of the issues and challenges that they experienced along that, along that road? And through mobile ethnography, we were able to get them to capture some qualitative video insights of every aspect of the journey. So them filling out the forms to going off to an Australia Post outlet, we got them to take photographs of the outlet that they were in, how long were the queues, were they waiting long, 
um, what was the service like from the staff member, how closely did they check your identification, so on and so forth. And so with that, with that type of research in mind, we were able to formulate a customer journey map. So an end-to-end -end customer journey map where we're able to track each step along the journey and the various touch points. And I guess what's really important about journey mapping is that we capture pretty much all the major touch points, whether they are influenced by the potential idea or solution that we might have, or they are touch points that exist beyond our realm of control or influence or desire to influence because we need to understand the overarching customer experience. And it's often within areas that we least expect that we can innovate. So, you know, what we actually found with the Working With Children check is that actually going to the Australia Post outlet was probably not the biggest point of friction. Some of the biggest points of friction around identification. So what forms of ID do I um, can I use to get a working with children check? And we really need to help solve that problem. Um, although we were able to offer the online identity verification, it was really important that we were able to solve, well, not solve the problem, but assist people on that journey to say, well, these are the valid forms of ID that you can use to get your working with children check. And here's how you can go about getting those in place um, to get this check in, in place too. So, so that's really about the, the customer journey map. And I'm um, also, I, I mentioned- Question, sorry, I've got a question from the group. Um, sure. And you mentioned one of the challenges the groups have been having is, okay, they're exploring this problem domain. I think the groups have got some skill sets to go and get that quantitative research, market size, the demographics of a market, sort of breaking it down to get into the persona, if you like, or into the, you know, the, 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 you know, into the, the, the mindset of the individual um, from a, quantitative point of view but you mentioned uh, like a qualitative tool what would be a tool that you could point the groups at that might help them frame up whether it's surveying or engagement or access to potential people that they might be able to engage with because one of the key principles that we're really driving home here and, and you've mentioned it here is yes we might have an idea let's not overvalue the idea and let's not be precious about it and um, there's a there's a guy we've both worked with John Klein Sheffy and, and John Klein uh, used to say, you know, you keep secrets, secrets from the market and the market will keep secrets from you. And what, what he's really saying there is if you hold things too tight, you won't be able to get that feedback to iterate and improve and innovate really. So um, one of the things we're really aiming for the students to do is to get active very quickly and as dirty and ugly as it may be, actually put something out there, prototype, get that feedback, reshape, re and it could reform any part of that design thinking process, right? As you're saying, it's not a linear process, really. So what, what are some of those tools, Shefik, that you think might, the tools might, um, some of the tools that the students may feel that, uh, or, or may be beneficial to the students? Yeah, yeah. Look, I, a couple of tools that I've used recently um, for mobile ethnography, there's a tool called Indemo, I-N-D-E-E-M-O. It's a tool that's based out of Ireland of all places. Um, but there's, there's a couple of others that you can use. I'm, I'm, I don't advocate just using Indemo, but if you look to explore, that's one I've used recently and that worked really, really well. I thought the platform was quite easy to set up. 
One of the key aspects for this is, and what puts a lot of people off doing their own research, is a hesitancy to actually get in front of people and conduct that research. And, you know, you can look at, you can, the research can be as simple as guerrilla research, where you go down to Southern Cross Station and with a bar of chocolate in your hand saying, hey, we've got a couple of minutes for a bar of chocolate, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. Now that's a really, really quick and easy, dirty way to get some feedback. Yep. Maybe not, not particularly targeted, um, but, but it's really cheap. So if you're going to use a tool like Indemo, there's, an, a, there's a price tag attached and it might be, you know, a, a thousand or a couple of thousand dollars to, to leverage it for a study. So, so that, that, that's why I mentioned you, there's not just one tool, there's a, there's a suite of things and a bucket of things that you might call upon depending on what sort of budget you've got available to yourself. The other is how do I get to interview or, or get in front of the right people? And um, panel-based research is a really effective way to do that. I use another tool called Askable, A-S-K-A-B-L-E. And Askable is essentially a participant recruitment tool where you can set up a range of filters. And for example, with the Working With Children check, I was able to say, look, I want Victorians because it's only Victoria that I'm interested in. I want, I'll ask questions to say, which of the following, if any, are you, are you expecting you will, activities were you expecting to do in the next three months? And, and there was volunteering being one. And if they said, yep, volunteering is one, I'd say, well, what type of volunteering? Would you be looking to help the impoverished? Is it uh, environmental? Is it, work, is it with children or sporting clubs and so on? So I can use those as a way to filter down to get the right people that I'm looking for. So Adam, you talked about personas before. You know, we can filter down to a persona level or a segment level. But again, a tool such as Askable is really helpful for that. Um, again, there's a price tag attached to that. If you can't afford an Askable, you know, go out to run some Facebook ads, um, do, some, do some Google AdWords uh, and try and get people to answer responses such as those. There's, there's cheaper panels such as Mechanical Turk being another one. Um, with some of these cheaper exercises, the participants haven't been vetted, they haven't gone through the process, they might kind of not know a lot about what's expected of them. So right. you might do a little bit more of the heavy lifting and you might have to go out to get a larger sample size to throw a number of them away because they weren't quite what you expected them to be. So, so there are a couple of tools for, for qualitative research. Um, as I said, guerrilla research, just approaching people in the streets another way, um, it's cheap. It's quick, you get feedback straight away. Um, what I would steer you clear of is conducting research with people that you know and people that know you because they're going to affirm the ideas that you have and go, wow, Adam, that's an awesome idea. Yeah, Jack. right. Such a mm. smart guy. Um, you don't want to be doing that. You want to be getting um, people to tear your ideas apart. And, and only through that will you learn and adapt and change. And so what, what's important with these earlier sort of rounds of research, it tends to be qualitative because you're not quite settling on an idea. You might be in the throngs of an interview and that you might find out that there's a different problem out there that is really worth solving. So 
And an example also is I, I do, as Adam has said, I've run, a, I've run thousands of focus groups in my time. I ran a focus group um, out west, um, which was really around trying to say, well, how can we solve obesity in regional Victoria? Because obesity in regional Victoria is becoming a huge problem state. And running some focus groups with stakeholders and um, consumers out, out, out west, what became really apparent is that we were trying to solve the wrong, wrong problem. The problem's not around obesity. The problem's a, a much, much greater issue around self-esteem, employment, um, access, uh, remote, rem being remote, you know, not being able to, to walk to the shops. Um, and essentially, we discovered that we were going down the wrong path. If we're just trying to tackle obesity. We're really attacking a symptom, not a cause. Right. Yeah. So again, if we hadn't conducted that research, we would have just said, "Yep, we're on a great we're on a great move here." We had um, the organisations that we're working with had you know a million dollars in government funding to do some amazing work, but ultimately, I'm not interested in taking money and delivering crap outcomes I'm, I'm mm -hmm. really about problem solving so we really had to reshuffle and, and change our focus on that one that's i mean that's so useful shepik in terms of one of the again one of the challenges is students have had is how do they frame that up i'll um i've got an action here i'll reach out to some of these to see if we can get some student licenses and then students depending on the project that they're working on might be able to tap into some of these tools um the, the idea really is chef is that we we want to make sure that um, there's, there is a toolkit that we need to innovate. You know, it's like a carpenter. You know, a carpenter can't build a home without maybe a nail gun these days or a hammer and a nail back when we were younger and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so there is a set of tools that I think um, if the students can take with them beyond the course, or at least then they understand there's certain concepts. But the major theme, which is, which is great to hear, because it is something we're weaving in, is that engagement in some form with the end customer it is an arm's length to get that feedback. And that, that is quite okay. That is quite okay to bring that information back so that you might even, you might reshape any part of that persona, journey, problem statement, all that's up for grabs at any way shape through the process, isn't it? It's always up for grabs. Always, it never stops too. So yep. you never get to a finished state. And that's something that's really important to know that we set out yep. on a journey and we go, wow, when we get here, we're going to be nailing it and it's all, all happy, yeah. happy days, but yeah. it continues on. And I guess the other thing too, Adam, in terms of overwhelm, as far as understanding the problem state, I was asked um, to, to kind of be involved in developing the human centered design handbook for Victorian government. And yeah. it was an awesome exercise to be involved with because I got to collaborate with some fantastic, really, really smart people. Um, I then got the handbook back and it was an absolute encyclopedia of research tools and techniques and so on and so forth. And I went, oh my God, that's not helpful because Too you big. actually don't need to know mm. 501 different tools and services. Yep. You're never gonna be good at them. And, and it, it's just overkill. So in my book, there's, there's probably a handful that I use on a regular basis. Right. Um, throughout the product life cycle. So, um, and maybe I'll, I'll sort of quickly run through. So if I'm, I'm starting out, desk research is always my first stop. So who else is out there? Who's tackling this problem? Who's doing what? 
that's, that's a first step. Then I start to socialise those thoughts and ideas and outcomes with other people. Again, not holding them close to my chest, but actually talking. And then quite often a number of them hit the cutting room floor because, oh, yeah, there's someone else that's nailed that already. And I check it out and I'm like, oh, yes, they have too. Um, or, or what, so what, what then happens is that, yes, if I've passed those sort of initial kind of tests and there might be, I've got a network of other entrepreneurs that I call up and we bounce ideas off on a regular basis so if it passes that test and they're, they're they say that sounds like a great concept i then sort of head off to that qualitative research stage where i'll do some mobile ethnography i might facilitate a couple of interviews and in terms of a couple it might be something like six to eight interviews and i'll, I'll run them progressively so i might change to and start to interview different people or change my line of questioning. Um, I'll, I've talked about mobile ethnography. Uh, sometimes I'll run focus groups if I need to. Sorry, sorry, collaborative. Oh, sorry just to jump in. Do you just want to explain a little bit about mobile ethnography and what it means and, and why it's useful in this particular stage of the process? Yeah, so, so mobile ethnography is, is purely a tool to be almost like a fly on the wall observing what people are doing. So you set, you set the context. So the context, as I said before, might've been, I want to sh shadow someone going through the end-to-end -end process of applying for a working with children check. And so what they do with a product like Indemo, which is all kind of mobile based, is that they'll have an app on their phone. I'll set a number of questions saying, hey, you've had this thought and idea, you know, you, you, I've, I've recruited people that genuinely, they, let's say for example, they're gonna volunteer with a local sporting club that, you know, their, their child or, or nephew or niece or something might be a part of. Um, I've recruited them, that they're interested in getting a working with children check and then I shepherd them through, not shepherd them, I shadow them through the process of observing how they approach that. And they will record video of themselves I'll get them to tell us a little bit about themselves. Um, why do they want to work with Children Check? How will they approach it? Um, they go through the online application. They tell us about it. What worked? What didn't work? What did you like? What didn't you like? What was the best part? What was the worst part? Yep. Then they go to OzPost Outlet. Show, show us a picture of how you get there. I rode my bike. Here's, here's a picture of my bike. Here's the car. Here's the queues at the office. Geez, it was crowded today. Or gosh, it was really um, simple and straightforward and the attendant was super polite. So I wanna capture all of that. So that's really what mobile ethnography provides. And interestingly enough, that was a really interesting one for Service Victoria because there was a myth internally, I'd have to say, that people hated going to Australia Post to verify their identity. Yep. The reality was that people were scoring it really high. The staff are really friendly. The queues were pretty short. Um, not everyone wants to go during business hours to verify their identity. And, and certainly what we worked out is we have to provide them both options, do it online or go to OzPost. So we got that through the mobile ethnography. Yep. Does that provide and a bit more insight? No, that's great, Shefik. And I think what a, the, the, the concept of shadowing is a really important one. And I'll share another story with the group just last year when we launched into the uh, a 3D, uh, internal 3D location tool in at UCSD Rady School last year. Working with a, a number of guys from Qualcomm, really strong engineering background, they wanted to basically have a step through guide on how people 
paired the app on the phone with this device. And I made it really clear that I didn't want that to happen because we had to get 40,000 of these devices out to students and we couldn't, we couldn't be the good shepherd and get them there. So it was actually really interesting sitting and, 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 and sitting alongside a number of the, we had 30 staff and a part of this um, pilot group. And it was interesting just sitting next to them as they tried to pair the device and where they looked for certain actions. And it was the, the learnings, we ended up documenting about 50 key learnings, not only in this initial handout session, but as we ran a two hour window for um, the uh, staff, faculty and students to trigger off devices and chatting with the mock response teams, mm. the amount of learnings that we got that were just not even on our radar because we didn't guide or shepherd because once the product's out there, there's no one to do that, right? So the importance of actually getting something in somebody's hands and watching them use it or engage with it without sort of someone saying, well, no, no, that's not how you use it. You, it's more like, oh, why did you use it that way? What, you know, it's, it, it is still heading in that question and discovery phase to start to validate that journey and whether you discover more problems and maybe the problems are even more wicked than what you started with. Um, like your obesity um, example, you know, you start down one journey, you're getting this information back, and oh, actually, hang on a minute, this is more insidious than we initially thought. So just that's why I wanted to hone in on that, not just around the mobile piece. This is for any product. The principles are still the same, aren't they? Oh, completely. And I think you, you raise a really uh, interesting point too around what sort of jogged my thinking as well, the challenge that we have structuring independence into our own research. So it may be that you're just not in a position to employ um, independently conduct this research for you. You have to do it yourself. And I do a lot of my own research, but what I try to do is leverage tools that provide that kind of step away. So mobile ethnography is one of those where you can set, set tasks, but you're not inadvertently helping them along the journey. So your, yeah. your role is not to make them more successful than they otherwise would be if you're not present. And yeah. uh, I had some interesting exercises where we'd run user testing and focus groups over the years. And we had one-way mirrors, and this was quite some time ago. And we'd have the client banging on the mirror saying, you idiot, it's just over there. You just have to press that button. Um, but the fact is that they're not idiots, right? Because if they don't get it, chances are there's a lot of other people out there that don't yep. get it. Yep. So we want to capture that. We want to understand what their real activities and actions and processes are so that we can solve for that. So, Shafiq, what I might do is I might, I'm just going to quickly scan through some of these questions. Some of them I might just say, that, hey, I think we may have covered that. There's also yeah. been some um, message, uh, questions from the floor. And what we'll do, guys, we will cut it at one, uh, at, at, sorry, at five o'clock sharp. But what we'll do if, um, if Shafiq's okay with this, I'll package up these questions. And Shafiq, I might grab you and we might just pin a couple of responses back to the team. Yeah. And, and whether it's URLs, tools, some ideas and some guidance. I have reached out to a number of groups that I'll do some short little one-on-ones with them to sort of get them moving, get them sort of pushed into contradicting what we're saying. I will give them a little nudge and guidance being the shepherd into certain some of the areas. But one of the questions was um, 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 about competition. So when selecting a problem to solve in, the, in a problem domain, 
How do you how do you go about effectively analysing the potential market, considering the existing competitors in that market, or do you find that that actually helps in some regard? Yeah. So as I said earlier, I always as as my first cab off the rank is to carry out some desk research. So what is the idea that I have? What's the spark? And who else? You know, just carrying out some Google searches to understand who's who's trying to solve that currently. Yeah. And, and sometimes it might actually throw you off and go, oh, there's someone out there doing a really good job of that. But just by the fact of their existence doesn't mean they're nailing it or, or actually yeah. meeting that need. So I think what, what's, and as I said earlier, ideas are cheap. It's really around how you execute. So yeah. it might be enough for you then to go out and say, look, you know, I might want to do some comparative research on the competition. I might yeah. want to get to do some user testing and actually get people to use their product or service, do some mystery shopping. Um, that's yep. another thing you can do where you call them up and say, hey, I'm really interested in your services. Tell me about that. How does it work? What do you, what do you, what, what do you cost? Mm. Um, so so that's, that's another thing to do. But what you often will find is that they've got a certain bent or an angle that they're trying to solve. And more often than not, if, if you guys are doing your research appropriately, you'll be better informed than they will anyway. So, yep. you know, most organisations out there are not doing enough research. They're not being agile enough. They're not looking at iterative innovation. So you can just be more nimble. You can be smarter. You can be faster by nature of the fact that you better understand the problem state. Right. So, it comes back a lot to the, you know, what is the job to be done? Um, evaluating through your research to say, how are these, how's the competition satisfying the customer? Are they solving this problem? Yes or no. And on the basis of your findings, you might say, look, I think this is done. It's already been solved. I don't see a role for us in this game. Um, off we go. You yeah. Know, I guess another thing I will say is that I'm a big advocate of niching a product early so rather than going for mass markets I might want to target to a distinct problem so um, that might be targeting a certain demographic you might call it a persona um, it might be a certain problem state of which yep. there is competition out there at a broader level but no one's meeting that problem state yep. for a particular target audience no, I agree. I agree with that, Chef. It's something that we raised in the workshop last week was sort of as you start in this, you sort of start with this big, broad vision to start with. As you start shaking things down, when you're really hitting that traction, hitting that market hard, really, and particularly for the students, try and make sure that that problem statement that is so tight, I'm quite happy with them to be very, very you know, razor sharp. I'm not that worried about the, the, the size of any addressable market in this particular exercise. It's more, can they really get a prototype to market and engage, get a solution, iterate and demonstrate that through the journey? And I think it's, it's something that I will share through to the students. And I haven't, I didn't do it and I should have. And that was this, what is the job to be done? Which is a, a classic Clayton Christian comment that I think the students will get a lot out of. And that is, what activities do you need to be doing? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and certainly to that end, Adam, you've got to get it out there as quickly yeah. as you can to get some feedback. So often yeah. the other mistake we see is that, you know, really polished prototype getting to market. Look, just some hand sketches is often enough. Yep. So as I talked about 
I, I've leveraged the Google Venture Sprint process. So if you, there's a book out there called Sprint um, by Jake Knapp. Um, I've interviewed Jake. He's a really great guy. Um, there's a podcast. Um, I produced a podcast called True North, um, which you'll find on iTunes, where I, I interview. I don't personally interview, but um, one of my colleagues, Ben, interviews Jake. And um, there's some really good insights around how you can leverage the Google Ventures design sprint methodology to rapidly evolve and prototype and test a, a, a solution in market in five days. And, you know, the, the whole view there is that don't spend forever ideating, polishing, get it out there, get yeah. some feedback, pivot, do whatever you need to do to take that next step to, to, to get a great product to market. Um. Well, I've got another question here from the from the group. Um, uh, well, we've discussed. Do you recommend collaborating with external teams to explore the problem? The answer is yes. We've talked about that. I think at length. How do you know when you have enough insights to move forward with the process? Again, I think we've talked about that. As one, as I don't think you'll ever have enough insights. I think you've got more than enough to go now. And the whole idea is putting it back out there is you're going to constantly get insights because it is a, it is a loop of learning. It is a double loop learning process. So I think, as, I think to answer that question is you've got enough to move, to build a prototype, to give it to a persona, to get that feedback, to iterate and go again. And then that's enough insights to go again. I think that's what we're yep, talking yep. about. It's really around what we've said, Adam, is those those regular feedback loops is really important. Yes. Get yeah, it out it there is. early, get the feedback, iterate, feedback, iterate, feedback. Yeah. And it's not it's not a one stop shop, it's it's just a multiple multiple yeah. rounds. And what we're trying to infuse into the teams is that, you know, I've said that it would be great if the teams can meet every day for twenty minutes. Now we know that that's not feasible when you've got um, some group members are working, some are full-time students, they've got different courses, et cetera. But even something like Slack, checking in once a day for five minutes, you know, on, on Slack to say at nine o'clock every morning, hey, everyone going, we're going okay. Yep, I've got this task I need to do today. I'm going to interview those three clients. So-and-so's um, uh, closing out the next phase of iteration of the prototype. Someone else's work. So it's basically every day we're doing something. We've got a job to do getting in more and more information so that by the end of the week, there, there might have been dozens of iterations in different forms in different parts of the process. I think that's it. Um, we've talked about sources of information. So we've talked about, um, you know, desktop research, reaching out to groups like Askable, um, Mechanical Turk, which we, we can, which we can share with the teams. Um, there's the question around is quality of or quantity of data more important in defining the problem? I think what you've said, um, Chef, if I can echo that back, they're both important at different stages of the process. That quantity of data will get you going, shape frames things up a little bit, but then you're going to push that out into that action piece with the, with the, um, the customer base, the users, and that's where you're going to get that quality of information from them as well. So is that a fair... It's actually the other way around. So I think you start to understand the problem state with qualitative uh, feedback and insights. Yep. And, and what that enables you to do is be quite agile and yep. move that in different directions depending on what you're discovering progressively. The problem is if you look at quantitative research, you structure a questionnaire, you put it out there, you can't change it on the fly. Um, and often, yeah, right. you know, even, even now I'll put, I'll put questionnaires, quantitative questionnaires out there and most times I'll go, oh my God, I wish if I could change that last bit, even though I've checked it 10 times. I yeah, can't yeah. do that 
quant. But what, what quant does is once you've understood what the potential problem is, you can then validate how that affects different audiences. So is it across the board? Is it that, you know, a certain demographics or personas, you know, more or less likely to have this problem? Um, and, and it, other things like pricing analysis to understand how do I price this product? We use a lot of quant mm, 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 mm. So um, quant comes after qual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, um, the, and I probably misworded that. It was more like the desktop research to grab some of that initial information in. But you're right, it needs to, yeah. The, um, I've got another question here. What would you say is the most important um, Oh, oh, hang on. Okay. Uh, yeah. What are the most important things to do while creating journey map and the problem statement? What are some of the key things that they, that the students need to be addressing or should be aware of? Yeah. Look, it's, it's tempting when you're creating a journey map to think about your solution and how your solution is going to bump the needle. Um, that's not the purpose of a journey map. The purpose of a journey map is to understand the problem state and also to make sure you're getting that broader bigger picture so it's not just your touch points with the customer it's what's the overarching customer journey out there that you're looking to play in um, so that, that's really really critical you're capturing all of the major touch points whether they're with you or without you being in the picture and why yep. I say that is that often innovation comes and you've talked about a couple of examples yourself Adam where in the most unlikely of places. So, um, you know, I created a product called Loop 11, which is an unmoderated online user testing tool simply to provide more quantitative research and findings around um, sort of app and website user testing and so on. But that, that's a, that was a, a problem that we're solving. But when you're thinking about executing research, and this is what I see now, and I've, I've exited that business, but is that I actually think one of the bigger problems is how do I get the right people to look at this product? And that's where the askables and some others come into the mix. So if I'd still had that product, I would have morphed and pivoted into um, looking at the broader problem state. Uh, because right. often, you know, people can't join the dots. They don't know, well, I've got this tool to test, but who do I test with? And, yep. and you know, one of the biggest um, hurdles to using Loop 11 is getting in front of the right people. So that's another right. Yep. Yep. With, with the current environment, we've had another question come through, Shefik, which was around, um, obviously, we, we can't go down to Southern Cross Station with the chocolate bar at the moment. Um, <laughs> we, we might get into a bit, it might cost them $1,600 just, <laughs> which, which, and we've all been students that $1,600 is best spent on other things. But um, how, how, how would you go about it in an online environment now that we've got, you know, we've got some restrictions there? But maybe there's some opportunities potentially, you know. Yeah, great, 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 great questions, and, and you're yeah. spot on. Um, they're not ones that you can use today. So um, I am helping Service Victoria with a range of different um, transactional research pieces at the moment. Um, one is with Disability Workers Registration Scheme, which is about to come into place. Um, now, with that too, we can't interview people in person. And, and to all intensive purposes, if we get people to come into Service Victoria's office in Footscray, 
we're kind of setting ourselves up for them to affirm that we're doing a great job. We look like a professional outfit. Um, we don't look typically government. It's a little bit more tech startup. Um, that alone could potentially influence how they react and respond to what we in front of them. So what, what we're doing now is I'm leveraging the likes of Askable. Um, yeah. there's, um, so to go and find people. And I'm actually recruiting them for remote moderated interviews and sessions. So what that is, is that they're actually conducting an interview with me as you are now on Zoom. So you could use Zoom as a yeah, right. Um, and the other thing too is that uh, if, if you're looking to save a dollar um, because you don't have um, the money to leverage an askable, um, I use another product called lookback.io, which is a, a, a research facilitation tool. So I can beam that off into remote offices for other stakeholders. I could have used Zoom. I could have used the free consumer version yep. of Zoom, provided I was under 40 minutes. Um, you could also, as I said, recruit people online through cheaper mechanisms like Mechanical Turk or um, be just some good word campaigns out there. Um, using, you have to be a bit tenacious. Um, as I say, yep. if, if you're going through some of those other, other mechanisms, you're going to have to do a little bit more of the heavy lifting and you might have to throw a few away um, yep. to, get the, to get the cost that you're after. Yep. No, that's great, Sheffy. Look, I'm just mindful we've got five minutes to go. We do have some other questions, which I've, I've made a, a heap of notes here and I've got some actions. Uh, I'll reach out to some of these tools to see if we can get some student licences and that, I think, will help the, the students as well. I, might, I think I, I saw David um, uh, drop into the session. I'm not sure if David's actually still, still there. Um, um, but I just wanted to open up to David and see if David... Is, Sorry, yeah, Anna. He's here. Hi, oh. Hi, Adam. Hi, Sophie. <laughs> How are you doing? Sorry, David, could you repeat that? I'll just make sure I'm unmuted. Um, just saying hello. Hi, Sophie. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks, David. How are you? Thanks very much for coming along to uh, give your wisdom to our wonderful students. Uh, I've just caught the last 30, 40 minutes and there's some uh, great pointers there, particularly in the current environment. So thank you very much. And I'm sure they've taken a great deal from this. My pleasure. No, it's great. No, Sheffy, it's great. I think, I think certainly the, um, the, um, the issues has been, one of the key issues has been how the student's going to reach out to their personas because we have made such a big deal about this customer engagement to get that feedback loop. So some of those, um, you know, just the takeaway of the tools is invaluable. Um, so on, look, on behalf of the university, Sheffick, on behalf of the students and the faculty and the staff, I just wanted to say thanks for, for your time and insights. And um, I'll, uh, I'll package up some notes around this and I'll share it. If, you, if the students give, give me about uh, 24 to 48 hours, I'll package up some of the links and I'll reach out to some of these platforms, see if we can get some licenses as, as, a, as, a, as a suite of tools that they might want to engage with. Um, but again, thank you and um, thank you to all the students that passed the questions through. Um, and also, um, it, it, before, we, um, um, uh, before we go, just uh, everyone have a safe and happy Easter and, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll see you guys in the next week. Anna and Nikki, did you want to add anything?
No, I've just told everyone they can take themselves off mute and give them a round of applause if they'd like. Yes. Well, let's do that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank Have you. a safe day. Thank, Thank you so much. I think that was a standing ovation, Sheffy. <laughs> <laughs> Basically an encore. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Well done, Sheffy. Really appreciate it. It was awesome. Thank you. I'd love you to meet you and, and all the best. Yeah. Good on you, guys. Lovely to meet you. See ya. Bye.